Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Errol Yabake. And I'm Mike Heslin. You know, Errol, we often talk about how fun these conversations are, and they legitimately are. They um, are fun. This one, I would say uh, we had some fun moments despite it being a really heavy week. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into uh, Afghanistan as our main story and and the one that we'll spend a majority of the time on, you know, with, with some fun other conversations to have uh, around it as well. You know, we'll mention Taylor Swift, we'll talk Spy Museum, we'll talk about the infrastructure bill and, and the expansion of food stamps as well. But um, really, I think the biggest story for this week is what's happening in Afghanistan. I'm not sure that we would be credible as a news and a bruise if we hadn't talked significantly about Afghanistan. And I always really appreciate your takes, Mike. You know, you're, you're someone who follows this stuff really closely and, and have some really thoughtful kind of takeaway points. And so I think a lot of this was a nuanced conversation. This was not a um, sort of overly emotional conversation, which I think a, a lot of the coverage of Afghanistan is, I think, necessarily very sad and very emotional. And I think this was sort of walked through a couple of the implications, I think, in a really nuanced and even way. Yeah. And we'll mention this later, too. But I do want to mention up front that you've got an op-ed coming out today, if you're listening to this as it comes out on Wednesday, which we'll link in the show notes and discuss in more depth later in the conversation. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's get into it. Let's do it. Welcome everyone. Errol, hey, good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you again. We're we're seeing each other, um, although people who are listening obviously can't see us. But, yeah, drink um, it up, podcast listeners. <laughs> but I can see you, and you can see me, and that's all that matters, right? <laughs> I did something really fun earlier. I've heard what What did you do? So I went at the invitation, a really generous invitation of a colleague. I went to the International Spy Museum here in Incredible. Washington D.C. And it was like every nerd kid's dream. And by nerd kid, I mean me currently. <laughs> and so I was sort of thinking, I knew I, we were going to be recording later in the, in the afternoon. And I was sort of thinking as we were walking around, getting this special tour and going, you know, getting all the, the cool stories from the, the tour guide. And, and I was sort of thinking what my top three takeaways would be. So wait, first of all, back up to this special tour. So this was like a, a personal, like you had the museum sort of as, as your own adult nerd playground. Yeah. So imagine it's completely empty and just us. No, it wasn't that we did spring. It was a uh, part of a sort of work retreat for this other team. And they kind of invited me and a colleague to, to tag along, which was great. We did none of the work and got, did all of the fun, but they had kind of sprung to get this special tour by this full-time staffer, not a, not a like volunteer tour guide, like someone who actually had played a really big role in putting up all the exhibits and was part of, you know, rotating the, the, whatever they had in the basement in and out. And she was awesome. That's amazing. Um, and so she basically like took us to places that other people couldn't go, you know, like the rooftop terrace that had a 270 degree view of Washington, DC, which was cool. phenomenal. I'd and they, they recently moved to a new location, right? The yeah, so they used to be basically in this like kind of row house looking thing mm -hmm. in gallery place in Chinatown. And now they have this mega super fancy standalone purpose built building that apparently on the side of the building that looks at the Hilton hotel, there's like in code, I don't know what kind of code it is, but like in code, it's basically things are not what they appear to be is like cool. written on the side of the building. Yeah. It's like also kind of the best gift shop in DC. Definitely loaded up on some Christmas gifts in August. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to, as an aside, I like that we're just talking about DC neighborhoods and locations, like as though everyone should know about them because people in New York do that all the time. And we're just going to normalize that for DC too. We're just going like, to normalize that. Know what gallery places listeners. Yeah. So this was like right next to the wharf. Um, and you just were looking at it, Reagan. And, you know, you looked in the other direction and up on a hill was National Cathedral and, you know, <laughs> look a little bit further down and you had the Capitol and it was just, um, you know, it wasn't quite as hazy as, as it has been recently. And so it was, it was really beautiful. Got some good panos. So yeah, I, I have top three takeaways. 
What were your top um, three takeaways? Yeah. So the first one is umbrellas absolutely without fail are always weapons. Like mm. that's just a fact. So like anytime I see a we- an umbrella and as a quick aside, I'm six, three. So I Googled like umbrellas for tall people when I actually needed to buy an umbrella. And so it legit could be a gun or, you know, a smitar or whatever they ended up being in the, in the okay. So scene. wait, why do you need a different sized umbrella? as a tall person. Like I would see that if you're a very fat person, but the umbrella is like the circumference of you, right? It's not like the height of you. Yeah. But the wider it is, the more, the greater the circumference, the further down your body it goes. Hmm. Right. So do you, you, you walking around with one of these like toddler umbrellas and like your pants are wet. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'd be a terrible spy because I lose every umbrella I touch. <laughs> you wouldn't lose these. But so I, I have a question for you actually is because I failed this test on the tour today. But if you think about like, what's the most famous female spy you can think of? Hmm. Like in real life or? Like a real life spy. The answer, I'll just tell you, the answer is Mata Hari. So okay, because like, isn't, isn't the whole point of spies that I don't know who they are? No, so these are like spies that came out later, right? Okay. So current spies, yeah, I wouldn't expect you to know who the most famous current spies are because that's not a thing. But like, you know, Matahari was this, she sort of used sexuality and, you know, to sort of get what she wanted out of uh, marks and stuff like that. But apparently, according to this, you know, person that was taking around, apparently she was like not a great spy. Hmm. She was just like portrayed in Hollywood as one. And so she became famous. But then, of course, the the person that was taking around, Hannah, was saying, actually, there's like way more impressive female spies, including Virginia Hall and Josephine Baker. And so just just quickly on on Virginia and Josephine, because they are awesome. Virginia Hall had an artificial leg. Um, And so basically the intelligence agency that preceded the CIA was like, yeah, no, thanks, but no, thanks. We're not going to take you. And so on her own, she basically during World War II sort of moved to France and posed as a dairy farmer and created her own spy network where she was from this sort of dairy farm organizing and arming French commandos behind enemy lines. Wow. Like how epic is this woman? With her artificial legs, she'd carry around this 35 pound radio and she would like communicate all of her intel with mainly the Brits, but but also the Americans. And um, after the war, fun fact, she was the only female civilian in World War II to receive the Distinguished Service Cross. Cool. So, is, that a, is that a British thing? Yes. Josephine Baker, I think I've heard of. She was also World War II, right? She was also World War II and also super famous. Like she was basically a famous entertainer. And this is what's cool about this is like we think of spies as sort of being in the shadows and Josephine Baker like used her stardom, including like the Nazis apparently loved her. And so she would be able to go in and out of Nazi Germany with her entourage carrying all of her bags, like with basically nobody checking her. In her, in her sheet music, she would have coded messages in invisible ink. Like, I'm telling you, this museum is awesome. She would have coded messages in invisible ink that would go back and forth, you know, behind enemy lines. And it was basically because she was like, you know, a star. Cool. So, so yeah, we've got umbrellas, got um, Virginia Hall and Josephine Baker. What's number three? Number three is, so if I say the word or the name Leon Trotsky, does that mean anything to you? Well, that would be our second Trotsky reference in two weeks on this show. <laughs> exactly. And if I say the name Frida Kahlo, would that mean anything to you? Of course. The world's most famous unibrow, you know. Um, <laughs> did some like, art too. <laughs> did some art too. Um, apparently they were lovers in really? Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact, Marxist revolutionary uh, Leon Trotsky and unbelievably famous Mexican artist Frida Kahlo were lovers. And Stalin ultimately had Trotsky assassinated in Mexico. He was attempted assassination several times but they finally got him with an ice axe that i feel like was in like my world history high school class the ice axe sticks out very vividly to me no pun you have a much better memory than i do my friend i had never heard this story and of course the international spy museum had the ice axe like on display 
including with like the dried blood stains. Um, wow. They were like, yeah, we know that this is real because look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, highly recommend it uh, to people in DC and uh, who are visiting DC. Go to the International Spy Museum. Amazing. And if you ever need amazing intro content for your podcast, it's just there. <laughs> totally. All right. Should we get into the first round? I think before we do that, we should talk about what you're drinking. Oh my gosh. How could we forget? Because, you know, the brews in the news, et cetera. <laughs> what, uh, so so as, after the Spy Museum as your pregame, uh, what, what are you drinking tonight? Yeah. I mean, it's so other than the spy museum being awesome, this week has been pretty dark. And so I wanted to go with something a little bit darker and sort of comforting in a way. And so I, I went with the left Brown, uh, not to be confused with the left blonde Brown is, is really rich. It's caramelly, it's chocolatey. And at my local Harris Teeter is, uh, dangerously close to the ice cream aisle. So I always <laughs> yeah, end up I, with some. I love a good brown ale. Newcastle was like my gateway beer to all nice beers back in the day. Yeah, it's different and mm -hmm. and just really kind of comforting. Normally, it's like a winter thing for me, but I just felt like I needed a, a hug this week a little. Yeah, bit. no, for sure. So I've got a Lagunitas Super Cluster, which is billed as a Citra hopped mega IPA of intergalactic proportions. That isn't that makes no sense. Those are it's words. a big claim. <laughs> Right. And Lagunitas, uh, a lot of people probably know it's a California brewery, a pioneer in really making IPAs like a mainstream thing. And for my money, this citra hopped mega IPA of intergalactic proportions tastes <laughs> exactly like a regular Lagunitas IPA, but with way more fun packaging. And like, it's, it's kind of like, you know how Taylor Swift is remaking all of her songs as like, yes. this is Taylor's version. This is the beer version of that. Like it sounds and tastes exactly the same. And we're all fine with that completely fine with it it's great and also really happy for taylor for oh, like for sure you know doing her thing and getting credit and like all of her old stuff that she doesn't own anymore because somebody stole it from her is like not getting any clicks and and listens and her taylor's version stuff is blowing up so all right let's get into the first round let's do it in texas the state Supreme Court sided with Governor Greg Abbott, ruling that local school districts may not, in fact, require masks this school year, which would have run counter to the governor's executive order prohibiting local mask mandates. To leave no doubt about whose side she's on in this debate, God reacted by sending massive storms that flooded the Texas State Capitol building, then infecting Governor Abbott himself with COVID-19. I didn't see I didn't see either of those things, but I did see lots of friends being very happy as their school districts were um, putting up the metaphorical middle finger to the state capitol. Yeah, it sounds like there's still some some litigation to happen on this, but but they're not really that hopeful. It's like, you know, a 9-0 Republican Supreme Court. Uh, but the really fucked up thing about it is the basis for this ruling is a law called the Texas Disaster Act of 1975 that grants the governor power to act as commander in chief of the state's response to disasters. So they're basically upholding his power to prevent a response to disasters. Like this is like- uh, That's really if, perverse. Right, like you're, you're saying that while, while George Washington is crossing the Delaware, he has an incontestable right to drill holes in the bottom of the rowboat. I feel like both of those things are less than ideal. It's sure. not great. It's not great. It's not great. In other not great news, the federal government has declared a water shortage in the Lake Mead Reservoir created by the Hoover Dam near Las Vegas, the first ever shortage declared along the Colorado River. This triggers mandatory cuts in water allocation from the reservoir affecting Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico, but could foreshadow larger cuts in the near future also affecting California, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and tribal lands. So Also not great. <laughs> climate change moves on. Um, yeah, I think this movie ends as we cut to the manager of the Bellagio, like in the very near future, <laughs> watching the fountains of his casino once an ecstatic fugue take on an eerie, almost cacophonic quality amid the arid, permanently drought-stricken dystopia that Las Vegas has become, you know, with uh, like a single tear rolling down his cheek. And, and not, not the type to weep for Mother Nature or anyone else, really. He's crying simply because he knows. He knows they're coming for him next. Also, how did you integrate cacophonic or cacophonic or however you put that? Like that's 
mad kudos. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. Also, another thing I was thinking about, about Texas and the, and the mass, like the mandates and the holes in the boat crossing the Delaware is I've seen this kind of analogy being made about just sort of taking the COVID vaccine and, and the mass in general, and maybe at a point soon, we should catch up on what's going on with this whole global pandemic thing. But just briefly, I think, you know, we mandate that people wear seatbelts and we mandate that people not drive drunk. And we mandate all of these things that protect other people. And yet, you know, there's such a hullabaloo about mandating vaccines. And so I figured this is like you describing what Governor Abbott is, is doing or not doing just sort of reminded me of that and, and elicited similar obvious emotions. Yeah. You know, I think the seatbelt mandate didn't happen by accident, right? There was like a big, a big book on, on Ralph Nader's effort to get this done. And it, I don't think it happened without significant opposition in the same way either. It's, it's kind of just the same bullshit, different era. That's a good point. Just continuing on with the first round, part of why I need a left Brown, I feel like this week to envelop me in, in delicious sort of caramelliness is just the international news this week, Mike, was was really hard. And we'll get to Afghanistan yeah. in a second, but sort of, you know, even before Afghanistan was uh, sort of Kabul fell on Sunday, which like I said, we'll get to in a second, there was a massive earthquake in Haiti. And I just feel like we've talked about Haiti quite a bit actually recently. And these poor people just cannot buy a break. Mm -hmm. And so just as a quick reminder, like only a few weeks ago, we were talking about like a literally made for a Jason Bourne movie, like nighttime assassination of the president and the sort of, you know, mess that followed. And it's just, it's just a mess of a place and has been for, for quite a long time, actually. Well, add to that a 7.2 magnitude earthquake rocked Haiti on Saturday. And so far, as of taping, almost 2,000 people are confirmed to have died. Almost 7,000 are injured. And uh, UNICEF uh, estimates that it will ultimately affect about 1.2 million people, which is like 10% of the population. Yeah, so yeah, it's terrible. And Mike, in case you feel like you've seen this movie before, you have. There was another earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010. Again, these people cannot buy a break. Interestingly, that one was actually lower on the Richter scale, but just had an exponentially higher impact and death toll. It was 7.0 on Richter, but it like instead of 2000 people, I'm sure there will be more people that are confirmed dead as, as days goes on and they, and they find or don't find people. But I mean, a quarter of a million people died in 2010. And it's just like a numbing scale of tragedy. It's almost easier to conceptualize 2000 than it is 250,000. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the main difference is basically that 2010 one was the epicenter was basically right outside of Port-au-Prince, which is the population center of the whole island. And it's, it's just really been terrible for them. And so they were, they were done after the earthquake hit, right? Yeah. Oh, wait, no, there was more. So like literally two days after this earthquake, this massive 7.2 earthquake hit, um, the eye of tropical storm grace went basically right over the epicenter where the earthquake was. Haiti's known for its sort of mudslides. They're already trying to get to people who were stuck under rubble and I'm just going to venture to say that Tropical Storm Grace did not help in those efforts. No. I don't want to get into too much of, you know, Haiti politics and, and things like that. But I, I just, my heart goes out to folks in, in Haiti right now. That was a rough one. Any, any good news this week? Uh, I think there was some good news. And, and we should probably do this before we get to the Afghanistan piece, which is a whole lot of not so good news. I don't know if you saw this, Mike, but there was the largest expansion of the food stamp program in the United States in the program's history. That's great. It doesn't sound like my, like if you're a middle-class family, it doesn't sound like much to go from $121 per person per month to $157 per person per month. But people that know way more than you and I do about these types of things seem to, to think that this will reduce hunger and improve nutrition, um, which I think are, are good. And another 
really troubling thing, which is what makes this policy change so important, I think, is that I didn't know that there were 42 million Americans that went hungry every day. Like 42 million people don't have enough to eat in this country. It's like 10% of the population doesn't have enough to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about that again, so this is, you know, they're getting 30 something dollars per person extra a month. But when you think about that coupled with this child tax credit that just passed where, you know, most families are getting about $300 per kid per month. I mean, it's not hard to see how this could really add up to less hunger and more financial stability, more health stability, more nutritional stability, and ultimately less poverty for millions and millions of Americans. So I'll drink yeah, to so that. So if you want to just replay like the last minute and a half of this podcast, instead of listening to the rest of it, you'll probably come out feeling a lot better. Um, so, so that child tax credit uh, is proposed, I think, to be made permanent in the reconciliation bill that's now working its way through Congress as the federal budget. Uh, so where where does all that stand? Yeah, and, and I want to hear your take on this too, Mike, because I know you've been following. But so there's this big infrastructure bill. Months ago, it seems years ago, maybe, Biden came out of the White House with a bipartisan group and said, we got a deal. And then it was like, not a deal. But then now it's a deal again, and it passed the Senate. And now the ball is in the House's court, which means it's Nancy Pelosi time. Mm-hmm. And Nancy Pelosi is currently threading the needle as only Nancy Pelosi can with a mixture of muscle and really excellent quotes. This is no time for amateur hour, she apparently said Monday evening on, a, on an internal call that was leaked, although... I'm guessing it was designed to be linked because that's just a great quote. And she was she was referring to people in her own party who are trying to to squeeze more or in some people's case, less out of the infrastructure deal. I think the last time Nancy Pelosi indulged in amateur hour, a Roosevelt was in the White House. And <laughs> I won't tell you which one. Um, yeah, so specifically maybe happy hour, but not amateur hour. <laughs> we talked last week about how progressives actually hold some cards in trying to get what they want in the budget bill, since majorities uh, are so slim for the Democrats in both houses, and they'll need every Democrat in favor to pass it. In a nutshell, what's happening now is moderates have tried to reassert their holding of cards in the House. I think mm. a group of nine of them have demanded that the House pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill before considering the full budget bill. Um, and Pelosi first over the weekend said, okay, well, let's let's try passing them together. We'll introduce a joint resolution that couples the two bills, which didn't really satisfy anyone. So she's now saying, no, we're voting on the full $3.5 trillion budget blueprint next week before we vote on the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. Deal with it. Uh, we're, we're seeing some brinksmanship here in, in the Democratic caucus. Yeah, I mean, look, my money's on Nancy Pelosi. There's absolutely no one better when it comes down to it uh, with this kind of congressional jujitsu. And I think that's where the good news ends. <laughs> yeah, well, well, really, there's, I think, just one big story for us to focus on this week in the main news. There, there was. And I, I have to say, I spent a lot of the weekend sort of thinking about and being worried about and being upset about what was going on in Afghanistan. So I, I've got some thoughts, Mike, but why don't you run us through what was going on? Yeah, so last week we talked about how the Taliban were on the offensive, taking control of major cities and provincial capitals. That was Tuesday night we recorded the show. By Friday, they had taken all but three cities, uh, which included they hadn't yet taken Kabul, the capital. But on Sunday, they completed their takeover of the country with President Ashraf Ghani fleeing and Taliban fighters broadcasting video from the presidential palace in Kabul. Almost as surprising as the speed of the Taliban's conquest was the lack of violence as with the exception of a few elite special forces units in population centers like Kandahar, the Afghan National Army, local police, and militias that constituted the pro-government security apparatus either surrendered or cut deals with the Taliban as they advanced. The U.S., for its part, relocated all diplomatic and security personnel, including an influx of 6,000 troops to the Kabul airport uh, away from the embassy, where we've seen chaotic scenes reminiscent of Saigon in 1975. Uh, thousands of people on the tarmac desperate to get out of the country, clamoring to get onto helicopters and planes, some even clinging to the outside of C-17 transport planes as they took off, really just like shocking and infuriating for a lot of Americans to see. So Errol, I, I want to turn it over to you and, and um, spend a lot of time listening in this conversation. Like, you know, how, how did something like this happen so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's important that you 
pointed out, I mean, you, you mentioned that it happened so quickly. So I think people that have been paying attention kind of knew that this was somewhat inevitable. I mean, we had made so many mistakes over the last 20 years, including potentially going in in the first place, but certainly over the past decade. I mean, we, you know, as, as the President Biden has said, you know, we sort of went in with a mission, root out sources of terrorism, neuter Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, at least, and catch Osama bin Laden. It's like, okay, check, 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 check. And then we just kind of kept going because we had made such an investment uh, in progress and stability. And, you know, as long as we had troops there, things were sort of muddling by. Muddling by doesn't mean that there was like full-on Jeffersonian democracy that was providing kind of services to people and, and stability and and resilience and things like that. And so I think what what the the sort of warning signals that I'm sure the president was given and, and what you know people I think in my networks had been talking about was like, look, this is probably going to happen pretty quickly, not just because the US has pulled out. Like it's not it's not 2,500 troops that's like they're not behind a line like shooting at Taliban fighters and sort of keeping them at bay that way it was it was almost like once the symbolic gesture was made that we said we were going to pull out which we can talk about the timing and how that was not uh done particularly well in in my humble opinion but you know once that was done you you sort of are leaving the afghan military Mm -hmm. to kind of hold the line against the taliban and i think after 20 years of training and and countless, you know, billions of dollars worth of military equipment that the idea was that they could hold off, you know, for a month or something and let us sort of do an orderly transition or something. It was never like the Afghan military in the current, or the, I guess now former Afghan government was going to like stay in power. It was just that it happened so quickly, as you pointed out. And I think that's primarily because I'm not sure that the Afghan soldiers felt like they needed to fight and die for the Afghan government, which really hadn't provided much to them over the years and was sort of historically corrupt and dominated by elites and stuff like that. So yeah, tragic, you know, but not that surprising. We're, we're starting to see some timelines and, and tracing of what happened uh, come out. And I'm sure there'll be much, much more. But I think what's clear at the outset is we, we talk a lot when we get into failures of government about some of the root causes and corruption comes up again and again. And I think we're seeing here really a mix of corruption on the part of the Afghan government and then ineffectiveness and, and on the part of the uh, US government, right? So we've spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. No one seems to know where a lot of it went. You've had well-documented cases, I think, of essentially no-show no jobs in the military. Um, where you know commanders will claim they have more people than they do so that they're getting salaries from the U.S. to pay out to themselves. I think that's one example of, I'm sure, many, many more. And so that contributes to a sense that there is nothing worth fighting for. Uh, at the same time, you know, this chaos we're seeing at the airport, there is no practical reason that the U.S. couldn't transport all of those people out of the country, right? We have enough planes with enough space and enough destinations to do it. But there's so much paperwork involved, so much process, whether it's uh, special immigrant visas, which you hear a lot about for people like translators who have uh, assisted US forces, um, or other humanitarian concerns. Um, These processes are designed to take years, and we didn't have that. It's worth pointing out that the processes that are designed to take years, that's, that's like a policy choice that we're making. You know, mm-hmm. bu- bureaucracy like this is a policy choice. And so like a lot of policy choices, we can choose to do it differently. Um, and, and I think as time goes on, so the U.S. government is very much focused right now on getting Americans out. I saw some statistic about, you know, the Taliban has basically said that the 11,000 Americans that are still left in Kabul or Afghanistan can sort of have safe passage to the airport so that they can leave or whatever. Assuming those are part Afghan Americans, some are just kind of contractors, whatever. Um, But essentially, that's sort of priority number one. And priority number two is all these other folks that sort of supported. And, you know, I've talked about 
on the pod before, like I spent some time in Afghanistan and so have kind of friends and former colleagues that are in that second group, right? That like are associated forever with people that look and sound like me and organizations that, that I work for and the U.S. government then, you know, by proxy. And, and so they're trying to get out. I think those folks will eventually get out. I mean, the chaos, um, you mentioned Saigon and, and the sort of the chaos that we saw at the airport earlier this week was, was really, really unfortunate. And I think it was just such a blunder. I mean, we should have been able to foresee not only the quickness with which the Taliban would take over, but, but the effect of that takeover on people's desperation. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we absolutely should have had contingency plans in place for that and not had to like fly in an emergency 5,000 troops to like help secure the airport or something. So that was a huge blunder. Yeah. And we've, we've started to see reports. There was a report in the New York times this week that said that intelligence was growing more and more dire essentially over the last several months uh, about the prospects for continued security or the continuity of the national government in Afghanistan. And that that really wasn't reflected in at least the public statements of Biden and and the administration. And, you know, I mean, just last month, he said very directly that uh, it was unlikely that the Taliban would come in and sweep across the whole country and take over. And so there's, I mean, there just needs to be a lot more investigation and and, uh, understanding of what happened there. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened there, but I, I mean, look, the Taliban have been playing us for years. You know, of course, this goes back to the deal that the Trump administration and, and President Trump himself made that sort of binded our hands, sort of led to a, us issuing a bunch of concessions and kind of, oh, the Taliban, you should also do these, you know, X, Y, and Z things. And of course, they did none of those. And in fact, they increased their attacks, uh, but the, the, ship had already sailed for us. We were sort of one foot out by then. And so the Taliban are savvy, they're smart, they're geopolitically savvy, and they were ready for this. And, and I think the intel reports were getting dire. And I, and I don't know if it was sort of wishful thinking or whether it was ignoring what they were seeing or, or maybe just sort of making this kind of callous calculation that it, it ultimately wouldn't matter. I, I don't know what the sort of reasoning behind not having a plan in place was. But again, I come back to like, you know, this was really poorly executed in the short term. Um, and the scenes from the airport are tragic. But I think ultimately we'll get sort of our people out, quote unquote. And I think to me, the the much bigger question is, is what do we do with the millions of people that are left behind that are now under Taliban rule? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll just say as an aside, like you've seen Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, out there being blowhards as they do and saying, you know, if we were still in power, this wouldn't have happened and blah, blah, blah. And I just encourage our listeners when you hear things like that to look for specifics. And if you don't see specifics of how it would actually be better, understand that those statements are complete and total bullshit. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point, right? Because there's a lot to criticize over the last month, you know, US policy and NATO policy, et cetera. And what happened is tragic on so many levels. There weren't that many good options and certainly no good options in the long term. I've not heard people say like, okay, here's what a good option would be with like relatively low investment. We could maintain sort of stability and keep the Taliban at bay. Like that's not a thing. Right. Which you actually have heard from some people pointing out that, you know, the U.S. hasn't had any casualties in the last 18 months. And so couldn't we have... Uh, stayed there for longer at relatively low cost. And of course, that's disingenuous bullshit as well. Like the reason there had been no casualties for the last 18 months was that 18 months ago, we signed a peace deal with the Taliban, committing to pull out US forces. They committed to not attack US forces. Uh, That has held and held through Biden's delay of the withdrawal by six months. But there's no indication whatsoever that if we had tried to delay longer or indefinitely, (laughs) that would have carried any water. I think Afghanistan has been some variation of a war zone for decades. And anytime you send U.S. men and women in uniform to places that are experiencing violent conflict, bad stuff's going to happen. And so I think the longer our folks were there, the more kind of death toll would, would rise. I think there's a case to be made that they're in an advisory capacity 
could have been some people that stayed, whether it's to service the airplanes or to provide sort of air cover or, you know, maybe it's regional presence, not on the, you know, boots on the ground presence. And I think those, that sort of Monday morning quarterbacking will certainly be happening. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what has happened since the fall of Kabul. Uh, So Joe Biden addressed the nation on Monday, forcefully defending the policy decision to withdraw U.S. forces while acknowledging that the Taliban sweep did happen more quickly than expected. Uh, What did you think of that speech and and how do you think it'll be remembered? So I'm pretty conflicted on this, Mike. So first of all, I think the speech was very like vintage Joe Biden. Joe Mm -hmm. Biden has been the dissenting voice in the room since 2009 on Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so I think now that he is the boss, things are are going the way that I think he has always wanted them to go, not in sort of the outcome. I don't want to say that, you know, he intended for stuff to happen. But at the policy level, he was sort of looking for disengagement from Afghanistan. You know, he was handed a shit sandwich, both by the Trump administration in the form of the peace deal, but also in the form of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. It's like the Russian doll of shit sandwiches that were basically <laughs> handed handed to Joe Biden. But there are a couple of things about the speech that that I didn't like. One was putting this all back on the Afghan military, which for reasons that I just said is it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's it's hard to blame the Afghan military for laying down their arms and like not sacrificing their lives for like a government that they don't believe in. Like doesn't mean they like the Taliban, but it's just because you don't like something, someone doesn't mean that you're going to like die for someone else. And also, I didn't like this sort of, you know, it sounded like Joe Biden kept saying like, oh, we were prepared. And yet we were caught totally off guard. Hmm. Oh, but we were prepared. But yeah, this really caught us off guard how, how quickly it, it descended. There have been reports that it was going to be bad. And I think it was a policy decision not to heed those warnings. Yeah. You know, people are feeling angry about this whole situation and, and genuinely sad, which we all should be. And, and I'm yep. certainly feeling that. That's as where well. I am. Yeah. I, I think the danger is a rush to figure out quote unquote, who is to blame and to coalesce around party lines, given our, our current politics. You've sort of felt a bit of a, a soup of confusion in the narratives as people figured out like what should my side be saying on this over the last yeah. several days and it's it's kind of gross and not constructive folks who were previously in power in the previous administration who arguably set us on this track for failure anyways are of course quick to say we would have done it differently right, right? And, like, and of course they're saying that ultimately it's the wrong question to begin with because this is all of our fault yeah Right. I was a sophomore in high school on 9-11, but I didn't oppose going into Afghanistan at that time. And when Obama was pushing the surge in 2009, I didn't oppose that in any direct way. You know, we, we've had two presidents from each party presiding over this war, and large majorities of Americans have supported it at various times. But I, I thought that the most powerful part of Biden's speech was his articulation of our presence in Afghanistan being misaligned with our national interest. Mm. Right. So Spencer Ackerman, who's a national security journalist, just came out with a book called Reign of Terror, which traces the causal path from the Bush era war on terror writ large through to the rise of Donald Trump and a bunch of other dysfunctions in our, our current politics and society. Ezra Klein I saw that he was. Right? Yeah, he was on Ezra Klein. Yeah, which week. the interview is great. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I have not read the book, but, you know, when when you listen to an Ezra Klein interview, you almost feel like you have. It, it helps, I think, it, to hear him kind of frame the war on terror as an epic, right? One that we sorely need to move beyond. Yeah. Uh, and as sad as this episode is after innumerable tragedies in Afghanistan, we need to understand that the money we've spent, the lives we've lost are sunk costs at this point for the U.S. strategically. And the war in Afghanistan was the first major action in the war on terror. But my hope is that we can move beyond this age where we see the tactic of terror as our greatest threat and any any minuscule risk of a terror attack as sufficient to justify military action or other misadventures. Yeah, which I think he talks about in that interview really eloquently, which leads me to believe that the book is similarly excellent. 
shout out to my buddy Rob, by the way, who who put me on to that podcast episode because it was really eye opening. And I think he draws lines between he sort of draws lines further back than I think we most often go uh, in a in a really productive way. That's very very relevant to what happened this week. Yeah, yeah. The the things that I thought were missing from the Biden speech were one a more fulsome acknowledgement of the either intelligence or action on the intelligence failures that have led to this and two statement of our current priorities. Yeah. Right? Like there's this airlift essentially happening at the Kabul airport right now. That is everything. I mean, that, that is existentially important to uh, how to the extent to which we will be able to honor commitments we have made to people, both Americans and otherwise in Afghanistan uh, and to how this whole episode will be rem- remembered. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the next day after that Biden speech, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan came on and gave uh, sort of, I don't know if it was a press conference or a statement where he basically addressed that latter point that you made about sort of our immediate priorities are getting people out. And this is where the whole like 11,000 Americans who are still there will get safe passage came from. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of priority setting that's that's happening. I think if we're still talking about the speech and what was missing is a longer term. I know we're in the moment right now, but I, I feel like there the statement of priorities is not about just the near term. I think Afghanistan has been in a state of humanitarian crisis for decades um, and it's going to get worse by all estimations. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am you know, some articulation of what those priorities are going to be once those Americans and people who are aligned with foreigners are in safe hands. There's still going to be millions and millions and millions of Afghans who are living under Taliban rule, uh, either at home or, or being forced from their homes due to the fact that the Taliban are now in control. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good bridge point to the last big question I've had, which is, I think, Errol, you've got an op-ed coming out on this. I do. I I have an op-ed in um, an outlet called Defense One that is, by the time you're listening to this, it should be be out um, and we can put it in the show notes. But it's basically talks about what some of the humanitarian fallout is is likely to be. And I mean, people in my world always talk about kind of 2015 and the quote unquote migrate, you know, migration crisis, how destabilized Europe. And I think the the latter part of that statement is correct. I try not to see people, vulnerable people on the move as crises, but I think the fact that they are moving is troubling and and geopolitically disruptive, as was the case in in 2015. I don't think it's direct causal link, but I think it's related to things like Brexit and Trump getting elected and and a whole host of sort of the rise of Viktor Orban and in Hungary and, and other kind of trends in the wrong direction. A lot of that can be tied back to this disruption that happened in 2015. And that was at its peak, that was like a million people coming irregularly. And I, you know, if you look at sort of the population of Afghanistan, to the best of our knowledge, you know, the uh, accurate census hasn't been done in forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we think that there are, um, you know, about 40 million people, I think, in, in Afghanistan. And, and if you think about half of those being women that are now going to fall under Taliban rule, uh, and a sizable number of those being families with children, including girl children who are no longer probably going to be let into schools. Like, are you going to put your head down and try to survive the Taliban? I think a lot of people will, but a lot of people are going to try to get the hell out of Dodge. At the same time, you have borders essentially closed to them. The Pakistanis and the Turks have banded together saying, no, we're not going right. to you know, house you. The Iranians are, are opening up camps on the, on the border. So like, mm-hmm. please don't come to Tehran and other places. Uh, Europe is terrified. You know, it's just sort of like the world is closed. China's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And so like, where where are these people going to go? Most of them are going to be internally displaced. But I, I think that there's, you know, this is a serious humanitarian emergency. It's not the only humanitarian emergency in the world. 
but it's a serious humanitarian emergency that's going to demand a lot of attention and resources from the U.S. Right, and, and from the U.S. perspective, it is, you know, probably the one that we have caused most directly. If you look at, you know, the top five emergencies, like what do you see as you talked about getting people out, which is clearly job number one. But what do you see as looking slightly longer term, the U.S. interests and and how would you articulate what priorities should be right now? I want to come back to your point about like we broke it and so therefore we need to buy it kind of. So I think, yeah, first of all, getting people out who helped us, obviously, I think, you know, a, a big priority is going to be and you're going to start seeing this more and more in mainstream news, I think, um, about sort of the reason that we went into Afghanistan in the first place was because it was a terrorist safe haven. And so now we essentially have no eyes and ears on the ground. And is this going to be a terrorist safe haven again? Mm -hmm. We have different tools than we, than we had back then. We have drones and satellites and other things that, that we can you know, use to find, but they also have more sophisticated tools as well. Thousands of bad guys are being let out of jail, already let out of jail. And, and so there's I think some pretty credible fears that there's, you know, going to be a hotbed of, of terrorism there. Not, not the only one. There's, you know, lots of ungoverned spaces or, or failed uh, governance spaces around the world. But I think add this, uh, this one to the list. And so I think that's going to be a big thing that, that we're going to be focusing on from a national security perspective. But again, I come back to this, like, we have to, you know, deal with the humanitarian fallout and to, to get to your you know, we broke it, let's buy it point. I think that's what essentially, to me at least, makes this different than some of the other displacement crises. So like there's more Syrian refugees around the world than there are any other type of refugees, Venezuelans, and then it's Afghans third. That may change based on what's happening, but that's currently how it stood at the end of 2020. And so, but Syria and Venezuela were not crises of America's direct causing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is why the 1975 Saigon example is, is really relevant because a part of that story that's not told is that there were 4.5 million Vietnamese people who were forcibly displaced refugees out of Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. A majority of those folks ended up where? In the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And now they own businesses, they run for office, they are sort of the backbone of their communities. And I think that it's a, it's a crisis of imagination if we can't figure out a way to do something similar for the Afghans. Yep. So I think that's a big thing is we talked about bureaucracy as a policy choice. I think we need to streamline paperwork. Um, I think that the U.S. is going to need to support uh, organizations and international institutions and humanitarian agencies and stuff that are on the front lines of responding to where Afghans are and where they're going to be. But I think we're also going to have to open our doors. And I know that that's politically charged. I know that's going to be difficult. But I mean, you've I just already seen, see. you've already seen like the worst people we have, right? Like Stephen Miller and Tucker Carlson, like coming after the refugees preemptively, which is gross, like in the moment. So yeah, I mean, I think every horrific and creative thing you saw the Trump White House do to keep immigrants out, uh, the Biden White House needs to be equally creative and innovative in letting these people in. And this is where I think the Biden administration can, on Afghanistan, be a differentiator with the last administration. If Trump were still in power, we probably the same thing would have happened. And yet we would have had very little support prospects for Afghans, mm -hmm. right? They would have been like, ah, we don't care. Oh, they're all internally displaced. They can't go anywhere. Oh, okay, whatever. Don't care. Which is essentially almost verbatim what their policy choices are were on other, you know, similar crises. And I think that it, you know, remains to be seen, but I think that's a huge opportunity for the Biden administration. They can do something different on this. I've got one other thought on this, which kind of goes back to the epical shift from the age of the war on terror to whatever we need to create coming next, which is there's one big thing that is true about the world now that wasn't true in 2001. Uh, more than one big thing, but one big thing that I'll talk about here, which is that we now have a universal acknowledgement that climate change is real and caused by humans, and that we as a society need to move beyond fossil fuels. 
And I think the war on terror, because Dick Cheney was in the White House, largely, and the people around him, became inextricably linked via the invasion of Iraq with the American need for oil. I mean, geopolitically, right, America is now the largest producer of oil in, in the world. So there, there are a lot of different considerations. But I think the fact that we no longer need to be involved in some of these uh, foreign adventures, as some people see them, uh, with the oil rationale, is something that we can make even more true, right, through COP26 later this year, the climate summit, through other actions that we're taking in the other bills that we're talking about, the infrastructure bill and the budget bill. We can create a future where uh, we can be much more clear-eyed about what American interests really are, because we don't need to tie it into this need for foreign energy. And so I think that is uh, just something that's really important, I think was implicit in the way that this administration is articulating US national interest, but is something that should add urgency to our fight against climate change and push toward more renewable sources of energy. I, I would take that even a step further and just say, I get the sense that there is bipartisan aversion to interventionalism, whereas I think the Dick Cheney's and the George W. Bush's and the, and the Rumsfeld's of the world essentially were able to convince people after a terrible tragedy that happened on our own soil to go on a bunch of misadventures, that ship has sailed. Um, and, and I'm not sure in my professional lifetime it's ever coming back. Um, and that's not because Democrats are against intervention and Republicans. No, this is like, you know, there is bipartisan aversion to going and, and getting involved. And, and I think almost to a fault, right? Like there, I would argue that there are some things that we need to intervene in. Ideally, we do most of our interventions, if not all of them diplomatically and with, you know, other tools like foreign assistance. But I'm sure that there will be need for, for military intervention at some point. But I think when, when that does happen, there will be, it, it will be a much steeper hill to climb for foreign policymakers, no matter which party is in power in Washington. Yeah, which I think you saw after Vietnam as well, right? There was, I think, some more covert uh, action in you know, places like Latin America during the Reagan years, but it was, it was really not until the 1991 Gulf War that we saw a significant deployment of, of U.S. troops again. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And so I, I wonder what the next arc is going to be, but I think we're at a low point in that arc. Yeah, well, for, for the best, I think. Yeah, for, for the best. Mike, I think that we may have fixed food stamps, but I'm not sure that we fixed anything else in this episode. <laughs> hey, listen, we fixed it, okay? We fixed it. <laughs> Fun talking to you as always, my friend. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabuke. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, August 17th, 2021 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.